This morning, we are continuing uh, a series that we started uh, three weeks ago, and this series is called How to Be Happy. And uh, in this series, we are walking through the New Testament book of Philippians, a book that is laced with the themes of happiness, the theme of joy. The Apostle Paul, who penned this letter to some of his dear friends in the Roman colony, um, of Philippi is, is writing to them and in his letter to them just continues to revisit the themes of joy, the kinds of things that, that might move us away from joy and the kinds of things that might move us towards um, joy. And the reality is it doesn't matter who you are. We long for a little more joy in our lives. It's why we do what we do. It's why we decide the things that we decide. It's because we long to experience a little more joy. And one of the things I love about the Bible is the Bible doesn't fight us when it comes to joy. The Bible simply points us in the right direction and says, if you long to experience true and meaningful joy, walk this way. And the book of Philippians is so beautiful in paving a path towards greater joy. And hint, the more you become obsessed with the person and gospel of Jesus, the more you experience real and meaningful Joy, and that's what Paul preaches in his letter to the Philippians. Um, but we're going to continue um, our our study, and we are going to be in Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two, and um, when we rejoin uh, this uh, book in the second chapter of Philippians, uh, Paul is man. He is writing to plead with the Philippians to stop fighting against each other. He is begging them, stop fighting against each other, rather fight for each other. Um, there is a little bit of drama brewing in the Philippian church, and it's been brewing for a while. We're going to see this in chapter 4, but a couple of characters in the church, uh, Yodia and Syntyche, these two ladies are having some beef, some drama that doesn't seem to be uh, dissipating. It doesn't seem to be resolving, doesn't seem to be going away. We don't know why these two ladies were mad. He doesn't tell us. Um, but if you ask me, I would guess because... Their parents named them Yodia and Syntyche. That's just reason to walk around mad um, all the time. Now, although it's more likely that these ladies are experiencing a little bit of a leadership, a little bit of a power struggle. They are trying to get an edge, a little advantage over the other to gain influence, to gain popularity, to gain a little bit of a following. And needless to say, that does what it typically does in a church. If it's not resolved, the people start to get involved. And they start to pick sides. No, I'm with her. No, I'm with her. And it gets a little bit crazy. Um, and they start to pull and polarize from each other. And they start to, you know, rally and, and try and gain power for the one side over the other side. And Paul is writing to tell them, hey, fight for each other. If you fight against each other, 
you will blur the picture of Jesus that you've been called to paint, and it will steal your joy. Fight for each other. And I, I believe, man, the Spirit of God would say the same thing to us as a church. Fight for each other. In fact, I'd venture to say that if we choose to fight for each other, for the people around us, we will find ourselves miraculously happy. Show me a person who is obsessively fighting for the people in his or her world, and I'll show you a person who is constantly experiencing joy. In fact, I would go so far as to say if we fight for each other, we'll find God fighting for our happiness. But let's look at this passage of scripture and see the ways it invites us into this. Philippians chapter 2 verse 1. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we're going to have the verses up on the screen and you can follow along that way. Verse 1. Therefore, um, the therefore, by the way, is therefore because um, Paul is saying, I know you all want to see Jesus known and loved in your world. This is dipping back into chapter 1, verse 27 on. I know you want to see the gospel advance. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Paul understands this truth that I hope that we continue to return to as a church. He understands that if he's going to help them fight for each other and with each other, he has to start by accentuating what they share in common. This is true about all of you. Because wherever drama and division lives, you better believe there is something that has caused the people to accentuate where we disagree or where we're different. And Paul starts by emphasizing, hey, can we start with what you all have in common in and because of the person of Jesus Christ? And when he uses the word if in this um, verse, by the way, he's not using the word if hypothetically. Um, He's using um, the word if rhetorically. In fact, the better translation of the word if would be the word since. Since these things are true about you, since you all share these things in common, since you all are united with Christ, he's just making a rhetorical statement, something he believes and he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that each one of his friends in the church would believe as well. You're united with Christ. I mean, you have a relationship with Jesus, right? Yes. And you've experienced some comfort from his love, right? You have a relationship with Jesus because his love came after you in the midst of your mess when you least deserved it. True, that's true too. 
and you have a share in his spirit, which means Jesus has given you his Holy Spirit as a resident gift. You all share in his spirit. True? Yes, that is true as well. And you've experienced tenderness and compassion because Jesus should have crushed you on account of your sin, but instead he came in tenderness. Instead he came in compassion and invited you to himself. Isn't that true? And everybody would have said a resounding amen. This is true about all of us. And Paul says, then come on, make this old man happy and fight for each other. Start with what you have in common and from that place, fight for each other, live united. And you know as well as I do, the enemy wants to accentuate the places in our lives where there are differences so he can bring division and increase the chasm. And that's not even about us. That's just so he can blur the face of Jesus Christ that is beautifully painted in togetherness, in unity. But the fight for this unity man, means we have to keep running back to what we have in common, which is what Paul starts with. And then he says in verse 2, hey, again, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Fight for each other because Jesus has fought to bring you Together. And then Paul gives a practical sense of what that might look like to be a people who fight for each other on account of Jesus. Verse 3, he says, All right, this is what this looks like. Do nothing in your relationships with each other, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Um, by the way, This is also rhetorical. Um, Paul understands our natural propensity will be to engage our relationships driven by selfish ambition, driven by vain conceit. No one has to beg you to do this. No one has to teach you to do this. And as a parent, you know you don't have to coach your kids into selfish ambition and vain conceit. They are just natural experts in this regard. Paul understands we will all naturally move our chair to the center of the relationship and make it about us. It's what we do. She's cute, center, meaning she can make me happy. Because really, it's about me. You don't have to teach somebody to think like this. Kids, you better get some good grades. So we don't look like failures as parents. We want to look like we're really awesome. And so that's why we keep driving you to do a variety of different things. I'm going to work hard so I can look incredibly good and impressive to the boss. I'm going to preach so well so people are impressed with my preachingness, right? No one has to teach us this. Paul says your natural propensity is going to be towards selfish ambition. By the way, this word selfish ambition originally um, had political 
undertones. It was a word that meant to run for office. It was a word that meant to campaign. And, and you can see why Paul would use this word. Is um, in our relationships, we typically treat ourselves like I'm the candidate and I am campaigning for office. And you all exist to help me get to where I'm going. You all exist to help me experience a little more pleasure, a little more joy, a little more happiness. You all exist to get me to the places I desire to go. There is this undertone in campaigning that I am simply inviting people to help me to get to a certain destination. This relationship is about me and how you can benefit me and how you can affirm me and how you can connect me and how you can be there for me and how you can serve me. And Paul would say uh, to the Philippians, hey, first of all, you are not the candidate. So stop acting like one in your relationships. And then vain conceit just adds this idea that we naturally tend to feel central and superior in our relationships. We don't say this out loud, and we don't always necessarily think this um, vividly. But no, I, 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 I think I'm a little better than you. I... I just I think I'm more important than you. Just saying, my time is more important than your time. My feelings should be more considered than your feelings. In fact, my hurt hurts more than your hurt. So I realize we're both hurting right now, but let me move my chair to the center of this relationship, and can we please cater to my hurt, because my hurt is more important. It's, it's this vain Conceit, and Paul would say, you are not the candidate. No one exists to cater to your pain or enhance your pleasure or promote your agenda. And he would say, do nothing from that position central in the relationship and superior to the people around you. That should never drive the way you interact with the people in your world. Wherever you find yourself thinking your needs matter more, or acting like the other person exists to serve you, you are hurting that relationship. Um, Beyond that, you are already starting to fight with each other. Because the interesting thing about relationships is you have two people or more people, and they're all just clanging chairs to get to the center of who this is really about. And you're already starting towards fighting with each other. But most importantly, you're already taking steps towards blurring the picture of Jesus. I wonder how people in your world experience you. I wonder how people in my world experience me. Maybe I'll ask over lunch. Paul says, here's what fighting for each other looks like. Verse 3, rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. This is so 
powerful. Paul says, rather, in humility, switch seats. I am going to think of you, and I am going to choose to treat you like you are the candidate, and I am your campaign manager. In humility, value others above yourselves. I am going to fight for your your desires, and I'm going to fight for your advancement, and I'm going to fight for your success. Let's make this more about you. My propensity is to put my seat in the middle of this relationship. I'll tell you what. Let's put your seat in the middle of this relationship, and let's talk about what helps you. What serves you? I mean, didn't Paul say that in humility, value others above yourselves? That, by the way, doesn't mean that I become less valuable in the relationship. It never means that. It it, it just means I choose a less central seat in this relationship. And I give the preferred seat to you. For the sake of your Benefit, And I'm just saying, imagine if for a moment we started to actually live this way. This would, be, this would be incredible. Imagine if we just became each other's campaign managers and we just became each other's cheerleaders. Like your spouse would die. Like your kids would pass out. Your coworkers would just assume like you have taken up recreational vaping in the bathroom. <laughs> this would be utterly incredible. And yet this is exactly what Paul calls the church to be. Stop with the comparison. Stop with the competing with each other. Pick up some pom-poms and start cheering for each other. How can we help advance your dream? How can we help advance your desire? How can we help accentuate your delight? It's exactly what Paul would say. How can I fight for your success? Verse 4, he says it. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. This is not natural. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Imagine that just for a moment. Going around and saying, I just want to know what your interests are. Um, I just want to know how I can protect you from the storm outside or whatever's happening right now. This is just not what we tend to do. I want to advance my interests and and get to my interests. And Paul is saying, no, think about each other's interests and how you can help to advance them. I just want to know the issues that you are passionate about so I can help champion them. And this is not exclusively, by the way, a spiritual issue, or you mean that spiritually. No. No. It's just considering other people's joy. It's just considering other people's benefit, other people's success, other people's laughter. 
No, let me promote your agenda and preferences. Let me cheer you on so you can be all Jesus created you to be. And that's not always just in the spiritual realm of the lives that we live. We might not always be sure what unity looks like biblically, but I suspect it sounds like a cheer squad. I'm cheering for your healing, and I'm cheering for your restoration, and I'm cheering for your joy. Do you know, by the way, how much further the gospel would get if this was our posture with each other? Do you know how much further we would get if you had a cheer squad behind you? And Paul understands that. If we were campaigning for each other's good and benefit, we would be amazed how far the gospel went. We would be amazed how much people would be revitalized to fight for the marriage. We would be amazed how much people continue to share Jesus in their schools, even when it's hard, because I have a cheer squad, y'all, how people would continue to love the hurting, even when it's hard, because we are cheering for each other. And all of a sudden, the gospel advances, the face of Jesus comes into view. I pray that this will be a place where competition comes to die and we pick up pom-poms and, you know, com- you know, this drama of comparison is drowned out by the sound of cheering for each other. Who has you as a cheerleader in their world? And then Paul takes them to the heart of the matter. And he essentially tells them, I'm just saying to you, treat each other the way Jesus treated you. Verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. We're not primarily switching seats um, and cheering for each other and campaigning for each other because it's the simplest, easiest, and most delightful way to live all the time. Nope. We're not choosing to fight for each other because the other person is such a worthy candidate. The other person is so awesome and epic and I just, everything in me just wants to move my spouse to the center of the relationship and cheer for them. No, maybe choke them sometimes. But Paul is saying it is not so much about the worthiness of the people I'm calling you to serve. You are doing this because this is what Jesus Christ has done for you. And you are mimicking his mindset in your relationships with each other and watch his face come to bear in the world around you. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. And then Paul paints this powerful picture of Jesus' example. Says Jesus in verse 6, who being in very nature God. He starts with the crown. He starts with the crown. Jesus was in his very nature God. Oh man, this is so hard to, to, to translate. And even in Paul's language, there's a little bit of laboring to try and bring into focus the picture he's trying to paint. Jesus, uh, Jesus, um, Jesus was the goddess, is in essence what he's trying to say. Like Jesus could not possibly have been any more God than he 
was. The word he uses for very nature is this word morphe, which means form. Um, in, in ancient thinking, there was a belief that, that the gods have the power and the flexibility and the fluidity to take on whatever form they so desired at any time. They could show up however they wanted, in a freaky storm, if they felt like it, to show up as a cheetah, if they felt like it, they could show up in whatever form because they had the prerogative to do that as a God. And Paul is saying, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Forget the form. Jesus is the substance of God. It doesn't matter how God chooses to reveal himself in whatever form. Jesus is the substance behind the form. He is the God stuff. He is the God essence. Jesus is a 100% concentrated God. He is as God as you could possibly be. He is God. And this is so powerful, by the way, if you read the writings of Paul and the way he introduces us to truths about Jesus that as a kid growing up, I didn't understand understand? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he spoke words, and stars were flung into their galaxies, and Paul would be, yeah, that was Jesus. What? He was the God behind that. Really? Yep. And in the beginning, yep, Jesus. And in the end, Omega, Jesus still. And ruling over all creation, Jesus, he is sitting on a throne with a crown. He's just trying to remind us Jesus is as God as one could possibly be. Which makes the next part baffling. Verse 6. Who being in very nature God, did not consider his status as God. He did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. And all God's people said, why not? Um, why be the goddessest if you're not going to milk that for all it is worth? What do you mean he did not consider it something to be used for his own advantage? I am continually trying to find an edge and an advantage to use for my own advantage. To climb up the rung a little bit in people's minds. To climb up the rung in influence or popularity like... And if I can't find an edge, then I will exaggerate an advantage. And if I can't exaggerate an advantage, I'll straight up just lie. Slash repurpose a disadvantage to make it sound like an advantage so I can gain on somebody. This is unbelievable what Paul is telling us about Jesus. And I think he tells us something about the card. And the reason I think about the card is because of I know myself and the ways that I tend to use my advantages. And I just want to confess because it's good for the soul. The ways I use my parent card, I use it all the time. I may even use it this afternoon. All right, everyone, um, let's all take just some quiet time to ourselves. Why, Dad? Um, Because Daddy needs some peace and quiet. So I'm going to go ahead and use my dad card and send everybody to their rooms. Go to your rooms. Plus, I'm the dad. I don't have to explain myself to anybody Um, in the house. I say that sometimes. I don't know where I learned it from. Sorry, that's a jab at my dad who's sitting in the room this morning. But um, this is crazy to me. Paul is saying 
Think about what Paul is saying just for a moment. Jesus refused to use his God card to get an advantage on us. What? Jesus never sat on his throne and thought, I am better than these people. I am God. How does that not even cross your mind? Now, just to be clear, Jesus is, as a matter of fact, better than all of us in every way. Don't get that twisted. And yet he never pulled the, well, I'm God, I'm better. That is beautiful when you think about who this Jesus is. He was the goddess. He sat at the top of every rung, and he had access to every conceivable advantage. He had the crown. He was the ultimate candidate. But when it came to us, he said, I refuse to use my godness to give me advantage over you. Just think about that for a few years and let it blow your mind. Really? Nope. In fact, I would go so far as to say Jesus refused to enjoy all of his perks and privileges over and without us. Like, wait, what? True. Like, this reigning thing is awesome. But y'all are going to reign with me. This eternity is amazing. But you're going to live forever and ever and ever with me. What about the angels? The angels are going to serve y'all too. Really? Yeah, I want to share this. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Wait, so we're going to be worshipped too? Mm, don't get carried away. I am the goddess. I am the object of worship. You are still human, created to worship. But what a beautiful thing. And Jesus proved this. Verse 7 says, rather, just in case there's any question, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human Likeness. For those of us, I pity those of us who've grown up in the church and we've read these verses over and over and over again. And they've almost become part of this theological treatise, which when Paul writes it, he's not trying to make a theological argument. He's trying to inspire the church to quit fighting each other. And so he paints a picture of Jesus who made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. This is what's often referred to by theologians as kenosis, the the emptying, this epic scene in which Jesus Christ got up from his throne and he took off his crown, disrobed himself of glory, and then clothed himself in human flesh. He is the goddess, which means he had the prerogative to choose any form he wanted. And of all the forms he could have picked from his proverbial form closet, he picked human flesh. I imagine the angels are freaking out a little bit, talking about, please tell me he's not leaving heaven looking like that. (laughs) This is God dressed in flesh. This is strange. 
And do you know what Paul is actually saying? At no point did Jesus ever say or even think, ill flesh. I am too good to wear flesh. Never. I don't get that. And yet that's the mindset that Paul is inviting us into. No, he gladly became human. And you know what else trips me out? When he got here, when he was going through his closet and picking his outfit, he didn't just pick a human outfit. It said um, (laughs) Jesus showed up in human likeness, in uh, appearance as a man. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And the underlying insinuation is if you were walking with your kids and you saw Jesus, you know what you'd say about him? Mom, there's a man. And that would be it. Study the Bible again. And tell me if you've ever heard anyone go up about any physical attribute of Jesus. No, just a dude. There was nothing in the outfit he chose that gave him a physical advantage over anybody. Wait, wasn't he the tall one? No. Oh, Jesus, so really handsome. No. The, the, the angular, ch- cheekboned Jesus? No. If Jesus was in a race with his disciples and all 13 of them were on the bus, he'll probably be like seventh, like right in the middle. No physical advantage? No, if you read about Jesus, it's like, oh, he was from uh, Nazareth. He did some great things but wouldn't even physically give himself an advantage. This, to me, is the kind of thing that astonishes me about Jesus. And I'm just asking you, if you had to do it over, come on, be honest. You would give yourself a few advantages, would you not? You would tuck this in and and make that pop, you know, and chisel this, you know, and swell that a little bit. I mean, come on, give yourself a little bit more hop, you know, maybe a little more, you know, rhythm so you can dance on beat like... I don't know if we could do it over. Come on, we would make ourselves freak athletes or supermodels, or you are lying in church in front of God and all of these witnesses. (laughs) No, not Jesus. No advantage, even in his humanity. And Paul doesn't just talk about this change that Jesus experienced, because that's what he did. Like, Jesus literally got changed out of One glorious attire into mm, not so much. And then Paul talks about the Jesus campaign. Jesus campaign. How do I know that Jesus campaigned? Because Paul says he took the very nature of a servant, which is such an interesting thing. He didn't just become a regular human being. He chose a servant's nature. And by the way, this is so beautiful because Paul is not saying that Jesus wore a servant's outfit or Jesus pretended to be a servant or Jesus sucked it up and for a few years he was an undercover boss who served. Like, no, Jesus was a servant. In nature, he was a servant, which means whenever Jesus showed up anywhere, the driving question was, how can I serve y'all? God, in flesh, 
shows up and that's the question that drove him in so many ways. It wasn't who can I boss around? It wasn't how can I stand out? It wasn't how can I establish my authority? That wasn't his primary question. The question wasn't how can I work into conversation the fact that I made you and your mom and your grandma and that mole thing was a practical joke. Like he never... That wasn't his mentality. He showed up to serve. I'm telling you, it would be fascinating to reread the Gospels as the chronicles of a heavenly servant, and you'd be like, whoa! So that's why he healed people? Not to make a point? No, to serve sick and broken people. You're telling me that's why he preached about the kingdom of God? Yes, to be a servant, to be a host, to to stand as the human map quest saying heaven is this way. May I help you get there? To serve. He was by nature a servant with no personal advantage. And you should read it. I read like, wait a minute. Like, so, but Jesus, didn't he like sometimes just read people's thoughts for fun? No. No. If he knew what someone was thinking, it was because the spirit who he was walking in step with revealed something to him. Like if I was Jesus, I'd be like, walking is for suckers. I'm going to levitate out of this place. But no. He served and served and served as if to say, you are the candidate And I'll be your cheerleader. I'll be your campaign manager. And by the way, you have never had anyone cheer more loudly for your joy, cheer more loudly for your freedom, cheer more loudly for your marriage, cheer more loudly for your success than Jesus. Now, I'm not going to go so far as to picture Jesus with pom-poms, but he is cheering for your benefit. He is campaigning for your joy. And he's still doing it. He is sitting on his throne in heaven with a a bunch of stuff to do, talking to the Father about you, interceding on your behalf, defending you, even to this very day, campaigning as a servant. It's it's mind-boggling to me. And if there's any doubt, Paul silences that. That he was so willing to see you thrive and to serve you to that end that he let people kill him and he thought it was worth it. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The cross. Tough day for the angels who veiled their eyes out, imagine. Tough day for creation as the sun boycotted and refused to shine. It went dark on that day. As Jesus chose the most undignified way to die, you want to talk about switching seats. I'll take your cross, you take my glory. I'll take your sin. You take my righteousness. Let's make this about how you can thrive and how I can serve you to the point of death to see you become everything you were created to be. I will go to the cross and at no point will I think I'm too good for this. If this gives them the advantage that sin stole, I will campaign for them all the way to the 
cross. I will fight sin and death for your freedom and forgiveness. And if that doesn't make you willing to say, then I can fight for you. And then watch this. And team, you guys can come on out. Um, Verse 9. Woo! Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. This thing starts with a crown and it ends with a crown. This is such a powerful scene. This is God saying you humbly served and you humbly switched places and you never considered yourself too good for this and you campaigned to the cross to the point of death and God says, now it's my turn to campaign for you. I'm not just going to raise you from the dead. I am going to elevate you to the highest place and I'm going to make sure everybody knows you are anything but ordinary. I'm going to make sure everybody sees you in all of your glory, in all of your holiness with your crown and i'm going to make them say it that you are god the very essence to my great glory and then i think the theme of happiness sneaks back into the picture because paul is inviting us to think like jesus in our relationships with each other i'm not better than you I'm willing to switch places if it means that you get to thrive. Even at my own sacrifice, even at my own cost, even at my own expense. And I will not think I am too good for it. I will campaign for you. I will cheer for you. I will serve you the way Jesus served me. And I suspect what Paul would say to the Philippians. And if you start to live that way, God will say, let me campaign for you. Now let me campaign for your joy. Let me be the one who lifts you up because if you humble yourself, God will lift you up in due time. There is a pathway to joy, but it's not a pathway of clawing. It's not a pathway of superiority. It's a pathway of cheering and it's a pathway of serving the people in our world and figuring out what does it look like for me to fight for you. And if you fight for others, I am telling you, God will fight for your joy. And beyond that, if we fight for each other, I believe God will raise in our time, in our city, in our county, the picture of Jesus Christ, his son, in a compelling way that draws people to him. And if that doesn't make you happy, then we've missed the very reason we are alive today to make much of Jesus and see his name magnified. And how amazing that all of that just starts with how do you treat the person across from you? How do you fight for the people in your world? And so, Father, I pray that even right now you would show up by your spirit in new and meaningful ways. Ways that point out the places where we may be fighting against each other. And that you would bring healing, you would bring humility, you would bring repentance in those places. Give us the heart and mind of Jesus 
allowing us to fight for each other and together fight for the sake of your gospel and the sake of your son being known in our homes, in our schools, in our city, and in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.